The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. That's when I heard him whisper All of Jesus, none of me All of Jesus All of Jesus All of Jesus, none of me All of Jesus, all of Jesus, all of Jesus, none of me. Oh, the glorious liberation. And endless celebration When I found him In wondrous jubilee Should you ask I'll gladly tell you Of the key to our salvation All of Jesus None of me All of Jesus, all of Jesus, all of Jesus, none of me. None of me, all of Jesus, none of me. of the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. It's really clear that it has to be all of Jesus and none of me. This cuts across everything that our culture teaches us. Our culture teaches us that it's only about us. 
Now, there's a story that I'd like to share today. It's not a long story, but I want to share it with you today because this wonderful saint of God understood that it was not her way, it was God's way. Now, this woman's name was Elizabeth Baxter. She was born December 16, 1837. Her father was a Quaker. Her mother was an ardent member of the Church of England. And it was in this atmosphere that Elizabeth Baxter grew up. As a child, she was taken to church regularly, and she was trained, as all of the children were, in the catechism. But listen to her as she talks about her life as a child, as the consciousness of God came into her heart. Born of God-fearing parents who strictly observed the Lord's day and family prayers, she writes, I was nevertheless very ignorant of divine things. Like other children belonging to the Church of England, I was taught the church catechism, and again and again I pondered over the words that in baptism I was made a member of Christ, a child of God, an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. I could not tell what that meant, but I knew that it meant something. It it was meant to have something to do with God, that, that there was a real something there, but I was very sure that nothing had taken place in me. And then I became much occupied with the promises made to God in my name by my godfather and my godmother, that I should renounce the devil and all of his works, the vain pomp and glory of this world, and all of the covetousness, the desires for the for the same, the, the carnal desires of the flesh, so that thou will not follow nor be led by them. What did this mean, she wondered. It was a matter of supreme moment to me to know what I was led in for, how far I was personally responsible for the words that were being spoken. Now, obviously, you can tell this is a very unusual woman as a child to be asking these kinds of questions. But not so unusual after all. I remember when I was just a small child, I was most concerned coming home from church to my parents, weeping, and they would say, Raymond, what is what is wrong? And I would say, I'm not right with Jesus. And they would say, how are you not right with Jesus? And I would say, I don't know. 
I just know I'm not right with Jesus. And that my parents believed in adult baptism, not child baptism. And so I would say to them, can I be baptized? Mama, Daddy, can I be baptized? I was like four and five years of age. And of course they said, no, Raymond, that's something you do when you're an adult. But I knew that there was a great absence of God in my heart and in my life. I was hungry for God. I speak with little children often. And they're playing and they're laughing. But I see those who are called by the Spirit have a seriousness deep inside their heart. And if we're not very careful as parents and as adults, we can blow them off. And we can set their feet in a path that will bring destruction upon them. Now, we also do something that is utterly evil to our children. We put them in front of the television set or we give them video games to play. And so as one handsome little boy was playing with his violent video games i came and sat beside him and he turned the he turned the game off and i said to him do you know jesus he said to me no i don't know jesus but he said i keep having dreams about him I said, what are the dreams about? He said, the dreams I keep having about Jesus, he seems to be some kind of a king, and he's coming out of the sky, and everyone is terrified. And then there seems to be some kind of courtroom, and everybody is having to line up and go into that courtroom and they're all crying. I said to him, yes, that is Jesus that you're having dreams about, but they're not just dreams. That's going to really happen. I've watched as he has grown into adulthood and he would not talk with me any longer about the dreams of childhood. Somehow, in his godless family, he missed making a commitment to Jesus. And now he is hardened by the entertainment of the world and by the wickedness of the world. And now all I can do is cry out to God for his salvation. The Holy Spirit comes even as children, and he begins to move in our hearts. And some of you listening know exactly what I'm talking about. One man, even as a drug addict, even imprisoned, testified that all through his life he constantly was called by the Holy Spirit to repent. And finally, he repented utterly and today belongs 
body, soul, and spirit to Jesus. He's been made righteous and holy. He has left all sin. Now he dwells in the presence of Jesus. This young woman, Elizabeth Baxter, after her confirmation class and her questions about what all of this meant, spoke to the vicar of their church. And she asked if she was responsible for these promises made by her godfather and her godmother. And the vicar or the the priest blew her off and left her standing with a bitter taste in her mouth. She later was able to put that same question to two other pastors. Neither of them would give her an answer. The questions remained unsolved and she remained unsaved. Then her parents hired a governess and tutor for her until she was 11 years of age, and then for five years she attended a boarding school. During this time, she made good resolutions and practiced much self-discipline. She read her Bible, but she did not speak. But the Bible did not speak to her as she wanted it to speak. It was dead. Nor did she ever meet with anyone who could tell her how the boundless grace of God could swallow up her sin and and remove it from her heart. She describes this time in her life. She writes this way. To the world, I was a happy, thoughtless girl. But often I would get alone for hours together and, and cry to God to help me with no clear idea of how help was to come. It was not sorrow for sin. I had not any particular sin on my conscience, but a general sense of not not being right, of being all wrong, more like a fearful looking of, of judgment and fiery indignation. On the other hand, I had a certain faith that God is love. If I could only have seen how his just wrath for sin could be reconciled with his love. I could have found peace. My only idea of the sacrifice of Christ was that he died a martyr of his own holy life of love, which was misunderstood by men. At the age of 18, her father died This affected her deeply. She had loved him as she had loved no one else on earth. At his grave, she vowed she would gladly yield up her seeing or hearing if she could only know how sin could be put away. After his death, she spent some time with her uncle, who was a priest. While there, she visited a dying girl who asked, Miss Foster, do you know the way? She could only answer, I would give all the world, if I had to, to know the way. 
but if I may shut the door, I think I can pray to God for both of us that he will show us the way. She then prayed, asking that they both might be shown the path to God's salvation. Within a short time, the dying girl sent her friend the message, Tell Miss Foster that I have found the way. Elizabeth's unsatisfied heart experienced something akin to jealousy, and gladly would she have changed places with her friend. As she watched the funeral procession from the window, her aching heart caused her to sigh. Oh, God, show me also the way to find thee. What I am hoping you hear is that you need to allow your heart to begin to face reality of your shallowness in knowing Jesus. And there needs to be a great cry arising from your heart for more of Jesus. To understand how to walk with him, to understand how to find him, to understand that you must have Jesus. Don't trust in your in your knowledge of Jesus. You must experience him. There must be a dying out. There must be a cross. There must be a giving up of everything, of darkness and of this world. And that only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit as he begins to move in your heart. Don't be satisfied with this low, sinking, deadly contamination of the gospel by the world. Don't be satisfied with the social aspects of the gospel. Don't be satisfied with going and sitting and listening to a preacher with no conviction of sin and no fire of the Holy Spirit upon him. Don't don't trust this. This is life and death. You must get to Jesus. Don't be satisfied with your experience and pat yourself on the back and say, Oh, I know all about that, Pastor. Are you kidding me? You do not know about that. None of us know very much about Jesus. We're all shallow. We've been contaminated by this wicked American culture. We've been dumbed down by the modern wicked church. We've been taught to relax and enjoy. And one national radio speaker, a pastor... made me weep. He said, don't worry. Be happy. Go to church and have a good time. Talk with your friends. Laugh. Have some fun. You're saved. Don't worry about your salvation. Oh, this foolish man led many people to hell that day. 
I could never, I could never dare speak such utter foolishness. There is so much of Jesus that we have not even begun to explore or understand. We must have Jesus. Elizabeth Baxter's prayer was answered through a former classmate, Carolyn Smith, who'd also lost her father, and, and she came wishing to comfort Elizabeth in her loss of her daddy. She herself had been shown the way to Jesus. Carolyn opened the Bible to Isaiah 53, 6, and she began to speak this word, All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It was at that moment. Let me read what she says. The words were familiar to me, but as she spoke them, the Holy Spirit's light came into them. I saw all my sins were laid on Jesus, and my entire soul bowed in unutterable worship. Without a word, without a formal prayer, Jesus stood revealed to me as just and the justifier of him which believeth. I had what I had longed for. Suddenly I had communion with God in which Jesus would speak to me and I to him. And for many nights I could not spare time for sleep. He made it no difficulty to me to give up all for him. It came quite natural, dancing and acting and novels and fashionable dress and jewels and all the rest. It died out of my life by the absorbing power of the new life within me. It made me feel I possessed a knowledge which would save men from hell, and almost all of my time now was spent in speaking with individuals and seeking to win them to Jesus." Oh, she suffered misunderstandings from her family and and many of her former friends passed her on the street as though she had committed a crime. But she clung to her Savior and witnessed everywhere for him. Her heart now bound in love to Christ hungered for more and more of his grace. Now God always begins to send preachers like, like Pilgrim's Progress. He'll send us books. He'll have people speak to us that will begin to open even greater heights and depths in the provision of God's grace and the removal of sin from our hearts. This happened in Elizabeth's life at this time. This was a time of great sorrow and trial in her heart. She writes, some months later, more than half a year after my conversion, although I saw souls continually saved, yet I felt a need for a deeper work of grace. A number of the guides to holiness were put into my hands, in which was an article by the late Phoebe Palmer. I took it to the Lord, and then and there, 
was led to yield myself a living sacrifice and to accept the cleansing from all sin so far as I then understood it and in some way accepted the Holy Spirit to possess me. Now she was also acquainted with a Reverend Atkins, a mighty man of God. She wrote of him, He was a great uplift to my spiritual life. I have in my day heard many blessed preachers of the gospel, but none with the power from on high which was upon him. His great prayerfulness, his intensity, his knowledge of Scripture, and the presence of God which was always with him opened indeed a new vista in my spiritual life. There was a greater God-consciousness, a better understanding of the Bible, and a deeper consecration to God and His service. And for eight years after this time, my life seemed to be going on from strength to strength. It was but a small sphere of labor which God gave me in a little town and the surrounding villages. But He worked blessedly and gave me through correspondence and through notes on the scripture, an increasing influence. In 1856, the family home was sold. It was broken up. And she was invited to go to Mildmay, Mildmay, England, to take charge of the deaconesses and it was there in East London, during the time when cholera was raging, that she ministered carelessly and sacrificially to the sick and to the dying. But after two years, her work there came to an end. She was asked for her hand in marriage. She was 31 years old. A, a man had written a book about prophecy, and she had corresponded with him. And then she met him. She wrote, Naturally affectionate, the enthusiastic evangelist longed for a wife, sharing his hopes and interests who would cooperate with him in his mission. For even in love, his vocation was paramount. And while he craved a helpmate, he much more desired one who, like himself, put God first, subordinating personal considerations such as ease or wealth to give himself to the great business of seeking to save the lost. His choices of wife was then decided by his longing for one who felt as he did about the search for the banished and the helpless lost. He was not one to come and choose lightly, nor apt to be deceived by less than real affection. He waited until his foreordained bride was brought to him, but he looked out for a while for his counterpart. Hence, when he met at Mildmay, 
the lady who was to become his wife. It was with him a case of love, of all his love at first sight, a grateful surrender of himself to the gift of God. They were blessed with two children, a daughter and a son. The daughter tragically died. It was now after five years of married life that the purpose in her life became very clear. There was a magazine and they decided to begin to publish regularly. And she did the reporting and the proofreading and the bookkeeping. It was a work that turned the hearts of many people to Jesus. And then she was called to go to Germany and to minister there God giving her the ability to speak the German language without ever studying it. It was the Holy Spirit. Now I want to read for you another account. March 15, 1880. She had been suffering from a severe, painful illness. She would many nights spend the entire time in the agony of pain, crying out to God. She was away from her husband. She would write letters to him. And she would say to him, This sickness is something that God is using in my life. And finally she wrote, in March 15, 1880, I believe I am near the end of the suffering humiliation. For God is making more and more clear to me where I've been willful in my way of serving him. He knows I only live to serve him, but it must be in his way, in his time, as well as his strength. March 23, 1880. God is humbling me as never before. He is so faithful. Oh, that every vestige of self may be done away from me, and then God can have all his will with me. He cannot trust us with power according to the light we have while anything of self remains. I believe I shall praise him to all eternity for this time of, of suffering he would have taught me by other means, but I was not little enough. So he was obligated to use the rod, thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me. April 3, 1880. It gives me a sense of awe to be at ease from pain, as though my life must be more his than ever, and such intense sympathy with those who suffer 
that I seem to understand Christ. Oh, pray that my life may be all Gethsemane from henceforth. Those who have had a deeper experience of grace often make the mistake of enshrining it instead of accepting God's discipline, which he designed to reveal our nothingness in his almightiness. Elizabeth Baxter's writings never could have helped countless perplexed Christians had she not known this divine reduction. In an article written in March 1887, she said, I did not know how much I was occupied at that time with myself and my own holiness. I fell into spiritual pride. This opened the way for other sins of temper and so on. I was sorely disappointed with myself. I felt as though God had failed me. I conceived a very high ascetic standard, and I had fallen miserably below it. And though I cried to God for hours by day and hours by night, my old joy and peace did not return. But in the year 1873, I first saw Gladness in Jesus by Reverend W. E. Broadman, and in reading it my eyes were opened to see that I had been all the time dealing with myself instead of acting truly to my first consecration of myself to God and letting Him deal with me. All of my confidence in my own experience as a Savior was gone. My old experience lived again. It was true. But I was on the divine side this time, seeing Jesus as my sanctification, Jesus dwelling in me to be patience, love in me. Everything I needed was in him, for this time God had been closely educating my conscience while he kept me from sinning as I trust him. He teaches me from time to time his own views of sin so that things which a year ago were not sin to me are sin now. But the conflict is transferred. The battle is the Lord's. He cleanses. He helps. He fights. I trust and praise him. He has taught me the same blessed faith for the body as for the soul. Mrs. Baxter died at age 89. She'd been a widow for 16 years, and God took her on December 19, 1926. I want to read for you a quotation that she left. And this is really the crux of what I wanted to share with you today. It's why I shared this story of Elizabeth Baxter, so you could have some background. Please understand, this, this life in Christ is not shallow. It's not casual. It's meant to call us into the deep. She wrote, 
God reveals himself as the great I am. And the Lord Jesus again and again during the time of his ministry on earth spoke of himself as I am. Now people almost always tell us that they are how they are and how they feel. And some people say, I'm so ignorant. Some say, I'm so sinful. Some say, I'm so stupid. Some say, I'm so depressed. I'm so discouraged. I'm so alone. I'm so timid. I'm so fearful. But when the Holy Spirit takes possession of us, he shuts up all of the I am of our nature and turns us to the one great I am of God. It is a glorious life to which God is the I am and in which we take our place by the side of Paul and say, I am nothing. Or go down even lower to him who was meek and lowly in heart and say, I can of my own self do nothing. John 5.30 It is a life in which we expect nothing from ourselves, in which we know that God expects nothing from us. And if our fellow creatures do, it does not matter to us because our life is hid with Christ in God. The greatest hindrance in your trying to help God to do it. Read that again. The greatest hindrance is your trying to help God to do it. For there is one thing God will never do. He will never mix his work with your work. Yield yourself unreservedly to him. You say, I am weak, and you are, but the true I am joins you on that name of his, the Almighty God. Where is he Almighty? Where he dwells. Just let the Holy Spirit come into you and dwell within you. Then his almightiness walks about with you wherever you go. If Satan tempts you to the old sin, there is the almightiness dwelling in him who dwells in you. And surely you need not doubt whether the temptation shall be overcome or not. God is equal to it, though you are not. Shall the I am of our self-life be that of Paul? I am crucified with Christ. There is an end of me and an end of all my complaining of myself, an end of that old song of what I am. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That's Elizabeth Baxter. In my own life, in my experience, 
I've had a strange thing happen that I've never heard another person speak about, except some of the old-timers like Elizabeth Baxter. But I want to try to describe part of what has happened in my heart. When I was going to seminary, I made an appointment with my major professor. And I sat down in his office with him, and I looked at him very seriously, and I said, Sir, what is the work that I am to do as a pastor? He thought for a moment, and he said to me, Ray, I don't know. Everything in the church is turning upside down. We are in a time when the role of the pastor is not clear to anyone. Some say he is a preacher of righteousness. Others say he is a coach. Others say he is a project manager. Some say he's the CEO. That question has not been settled for when you become a pastor. That was not comforting to my heart. And I was taught relational theology and was taught that everything should focus around psychotherapy and around relationships. And as I went through my graduate program, I was told that my role as a pastor needed to be carefully defined And all I was offered was feel-good theology. And I entered into ministry. I didn't know how to be a pastor. Can I tell you that today I still don't know how to be a pastor? I still don't know how to be a pastor. I refuse to be a program manager. I refuse to be a feel-good preacher. I'm not a CEO. I'm not a coach. What am I? Well, through the years, people would say to me, and I have learned that it's the only acceptable answer. Yesterday I was asked, how are you, pastor? And I, it was a casual person, and I said, I'm very busy. And he said, oh, good, that's what it's about. Well, the truth is I'm not very busy. I have spent now 45 years in ministry, and I've never been very busy. Not in the worldly sense of busy. Every time I've tried to step out in my busyness, and begin to do something great for God. He has brought the rod down on my back, and he has said, stop it. And finally the day came, some 25 years ago, when he finally spoke to me, and he said, will you accept 
from my hand only what I choose to give you. I had come to an utter end of myself. I had given up all hope of being successful as a pastor. I had given up all hope of accomplishing the great things that I had set out in ministry to accomplish. Time after time, God blocked me from those great accomplishments. And finally, he just very firmly said to me, Will you receive from my hand only what I choose to give you? And I said, Yes. From that point on, over these last 25 years, I have only received from God's hand what he would give to me. I have not tried to create my own church. I have not tried to create my own success. I have not tried to create my own relationships. I have received from the hand of God all that he has chosen to give to me. A man can only have in his life truly have in his life what God gives to him. And this required of me that I give up the I am's, all of my I am's. And it has caused me to turn and take all of God's I am. Because I only desire to receive from his hand what he chooses to give me. And so my life in ministry has been a life of contemplation, of meditation, of the reading of Scripture, of prayer and intercession, of speaking the Word as He gives me an opportunity. I come today to speak the Word He put in my heart to speak to you. It is not my Word. It is His Word. It is His urgency. It is His passion. It is His fire that says, Repent. Repent. And then come and walk with me. Give up your life. Stop playing with the world. Come and follow me. And so I come and say that to you. Of course, you know that when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, Luke 6, 35 and 48. You know when he came and said, I am the bread of life in John. When he said, I am the light of the world, again in John eight twelve, or I am the gate in John 10. Or I am the good shepherd, again in John 10. Or he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Or when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John fourteen six and 7. When he says, I am the vine, chapter 15 of John, verses 1 to 5. This is the same Jesus who spoke in Exodus three fourteen, saying, I am who I am. He's using the verb to be. 
I am past, I am present, I am future. It is the I am God that we are dealing with. It is not the I am somebody that I must consider in my life. It is not the I am unsuccessful that I must deal with in my life. It is not the I am depressed that I must deal with in my life. It is not the I am somebody that I must deal with. I must come to terms with the, with the God who is the verb to be. I am not the verb to be. I am not the I am God. And we must learn to make the transition from I am to I serve. The I am to I will humble my heart before God and allow him to totally take possession and exercise his authority over my life. It is the I am God we must come and worship. And then we will say, I am crucified with Christ. Not I, I will use Jesus Christ. I will be somebody. It was Satan who said, I will ascend above the Most High. No, we're called to bow and worship. To come before the cross of Jesus. To see him crucified, broken, punished, bloody. And know that it was my sin that he died for. Almighty God, I cry out for your people today that you will quicken us, that you will remove from our hearts the world, the flesh, and the devil, that you will raise up a people who will come and lay all of their sin down, that you will come into us and remove the last vestiges of sin that we will have pure hearts and pure minds, that we will forget about ourselves and just see you, Jesus. Lord, forgive us for thinking we were the verb to be. Forgive us for our shallowness, our cheapness, our casualness, our coldness, our foolishness. Lord, come and revive us once again. Make the scriptures come alive as we read them. Come into our meditation. Come into our dreams. Lord, come into our life and quicken us that we would quickly put aside everything of darkness and just be content with you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley.
I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I pastor it for Jesus. I want to give you the address if you'd like to share in this ministry. I ask, please be bold. Write to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And I'm very grateful. Three people this week have donated, have given a sacrificial gift for the cost of this radio broadcast. You you quickened my heart. You You encouraged me. Thank you. Write to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box, 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Again, I'm Pastor Ray Greenley. God bless you, my brother, my sister. Seek after Jesus with all of your heart, and you will find him. I'll talk to you soon. With great joy Now unto him who is able To keep you from falling And to present you blameless Before the presence of his glory With great joy Hi, it's Bob Davis and